Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. My wife randomly wakes me up in the middle of the night and says, I think we're called to Atlanta. And I said to her, no, we're not. And I turned over and went back to sleep. <laughs> the next day we were making breakfast together and she was being a little cold. And I asked her what her problem was. And she said, I will follow you anywhere except into disobedience. I believe you know what the Lord has asked us to do. Welcome to The Calling. My name is Richard Clark. I'm the online managing editor for Christianity Today. We have another interview from Kate Shellnut, our Atlanta correspondent, our general Southern correspondent. Kate, tell us about who you interviewed today. We have an interview coming up with Leonce Crump, and he's a pastor in Atlanta of Renovation Church, and he's got a a crazy calling story, just like everybody we like to have on the show, um, where he has been through both studying criminal justice and law, as well as having a football career. He was on the Oklahoma Sooners and the Saints playing football, and now you can find him still muscular. He still looks to me like he could play football. It's apparent from the fitting, I think, of his suits that he is a very big person. Yeah. And but he's behind a pulpit now. He's yeah. not on the end zone. I wonder if do you know if he's like if he's like coaching in local leagues or something? Like surely he's doing something with that. I don't want to like accuse him of not using his football skills to his God has given you that gift and you don't use it. This is what I was told about bass playing <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> If God has given you that gift and you don't did use you it, hide then... it under a bushel basket? I did. Your bass playing. <laughs> yes, I did. No, I'm sure he's still following football, but he's seen how God has called him to different things, and he's been faithful to that. Or even, you know, when you have celebrity in one status that he's not known as the football player anymore, he's known for his preaching and church planting, and has been able to see to see calling evolve and change, and to be patient through it. Yeah. Um. So it was a fun conversation we had with him in Atlanta. He's got a great pulse on the city. Awesome. It is the end of the year. So other than this one, which is going to be amazing, what would you say? I want to talk about our favorite. I'm putting you on the spot, I know. Yeah. But I want to talk about our favorite episodes of The Calling so far. There were a lot. I did like, was it one of the first episodes with Russell Moore? Yes, I felt like that, that was the first. Yeah, that was... If it was the first, then that was why that was the first time that I thought this is going to be good. <laughs> yeah. um, but I also really liked, was it, um, tell me the name of the pastor in Chicago. At Jonathan his, Brooks. Jonathan Brooks. Yes. I was, that was the name I was going to guess, but then I felt bad if I would have gotten it wrong. There is something to being present where they do their work. Hearing the Russell Moore interview made me like grin the whole time where I felt like, oh, wow, just great stories. And then hearing the Jonathan Brooks interview gave me goosebumps. If you're just now um, subscribing or joining us, I know we're getting new subscribers every week. Scroll through those archives. They're all free. We keep them all there and uploaded for you. So I'm going to throw some out real quick. Um, I really enjoyed the Max Lucado one. I really appreciated the way he opened up. He was a super cool in general and also just very sort of open about his struggles and that was like a perfect the calling episode charles stanley i thought was really good for talking about really famous people 
Yeah. Charles Stanley and Max Lucado and Must Listens. But then I would also point out Peter Lightheart's Theology of Defeat is what we called it. Mm-hmm. That was a great one because you don't often see, see that perspective of sort of like the scholarly theologian. Yeah, and it's exciting. I loved getting to talk to Wendy Alsup, and we'll have more uh, women on the podcast in the year ahead, too. And we're always, you know, interested to hear your feedback. Let us know your favorites. Give us a review, maybe, and yes, give please. a shout out to, to your favorite episode of The Calling so far. And if you want to suggest people, throw it in that review, too. We love hearing from people. We also start messaging this now. We are going to go every other week in the new year. And taking some more time to find these the best people we can for you. Yeah. And we'll be developing other stuff. You can be listening to Monday Morning Preacher. You can be listening to Quick to Listen. So keep alternating. Speaking of like best of the year, there's a lot of like best of the year stuff going up at CT around now. One of the favorites, people love the book awards. Mm-hmm. Um, they're coming up or on our site now. And yep. you can see some of our favorite books um, ranked and reviewed by a whole team of editors and consultants. And you can find the best books in lots of different categories. A good year for books. We won't spoil what our book of the year is. You'll have to go and click. Um, but go ahead and take a look. It's a good list. And then we've also got the best of gleanings, the best of the local churches up for all of the weight of 2016 was a lot. There was a lot of sad stuff, a lot of tragedy we had to deal with, but I think there's some good coverage out there, good highlights for us to get to celebrate as well. Um, if you want to celebrate by subscribing to Christianity Today, you could do that with a special deal, $10. Go to orderct.com slash the calling to subscribe. That's orderct.com slash the calling. A year-long subscription for our lowest rate available right now, $10. Yeah, that's as good as it gets. Unless it's free, which you really have to be like a family member of mine to get it for free. Okay, so everybody... Work on that. Start messaging (laughs) Richard if you want his family subscriptions. And in the meantime, just stay tuned for our interview with Leon Scrump, pastor of Renovation Church in Atlanta. We scheduled this today because you had been out of town and you're going out of town. So tell me, where have you been the last few weeks? And is it work stuff, conference stuff, or is it vacation time? Because it's the summer now. Yeah, so I just returned from the Acts 29 Pastors Retreat. Uh, We hold one every year. And uh, actually, this year, our band was leading worship for it, which was uh, exciting for me. And then uh, I was speaking as well as hosting a panel. Uh, on some of the recent issues related to race and policing uh, and where the church is supposed to step into that reality. And then tomorrow I'm leaving to do another conference for a week and then I'm home for a while. So actually don't travel that much. These just kind of end up stacked on top of each other. So I'm talking right now with Leon Crump, who's the pastor of Renovation Church in downtown Atlanta. When you come home, what is it that you miss about Atlanta? What makes it feel like home to be here even just for this brief couple of days before you go off again? There's always this feeling, particularly when I fly uh, into Hartsfield, uh, there's always this feeling of, um, of calm and comfort when I see the skyscrapers come over the horizon. So when you're coming up 75, 85 north from the airport and you turn by Langford Highway, you start to see the buildings rise in the distance and uh, it just feels like home immediately. And that's that's that kind of blanket just washes over uh, every single time. So we always begin by saying, what is your calling? I've said it in my head multiple times this morning uh, to make sure it doesn't sound 
too ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but I really do feel that I am called to help reshape Western evangelicalism and the church's role, not only across difficult topics like race uh, and culture, but really reevaluating uh, what our position is in social justice and social ingenuity and social consciousness, and really seeing the church return to the forefront uh, of those efforts. And when did that start to crystallize for you? I have been a social entrepreneur for most of my young adult life, uh, and then even prior to ministry. So I have uh, non-pastoral related degrees. I've got a master's degree in criminal justice. Uh, I had a specific focus in case law and policing. So these are interesting times related to that degree focus. Missions work early in my life, travels to Nepal, uh, Cambodia, South America, uh, really shaped my understanding of the gospel's impact, not just as a get to me to heaven message, uh, but what is the full scope of the gospel? What was Jesus proclaiming when he talked about the kingdom and the very real, tangible, present realities related to that? Uh, have always captured me. The, the tangibility even of many of the Old Testament verses about God's returning. Uh, there's earth and, and sky and water and wind and, and tactile things related. And so it's not just ethereal belief. And that social entrepreneurship kind of comes out of that theological grounding. What did you imagine yourself doing with a criminal justice degree? <laughs> Is there a relationship between this and that? And then we haven't even started to talk about that you played football too, which is a whole different kind yeah, of whole other calling and, and, and place to be. You know, I actually was trying to avoid pastoral ministry vigorously. And when I got that degree, um, I was going to be a U.S. Marshal for five years uh, and then go to law school. I actually did a semester of law school before I went to the NFL. So it's a, it's a weird history. I graduated college. I did a semester of law school. I went to the NFL. Uh, I finished the NFL and then I went back and got that master's degree and I was going to go back to law school. And then, uh, God in, in the way that he does said, no, you're going to do this. Uh, it's why I plucked you from the NFL in the first place. And so finally submitted to my calling, uh, in leading at his church. And tell me how that background is now coming to play. You mentioned that, I mean, it's relevant again. We're here in Atlanta. You pastor a, a church that includes many races. You yourself are an African-American. Then there are African-Americans in your community. What does it mean to have that background and to know what's going on? Well, it, it really is dualistic. We have a binary culture that I don't fully understand. And here's what I mean. Uh, to say that black lives matter doesn't mean that they matter more. It means that they matter too, as blue lives matter. And for some reason in our binary culture, to long for better policing for African-American men somehow means that you hate police. And that is not the case. That background, particularly in criminal justice, allows me to bring data to the table in addressing some of these issues while not ignoring the the need to shepherd and to cultivate the hearts of people on both sides of this conversation, which there shouldn't be sides. Uh, your heart can ache uh, for men being killed on camera. Your heart can ache for police being killed, protecting the First Amendment rights of people to gather and protest. 
And what does that look like in this local church setting for you as a pastor, whether it's talking to individual people or the programming of renovation? It, it really shapes a lot of what we do. So when you came into our building uh, today, you can see on the wall right over the auditorium doors, socially conscious is the centerpiece of our tagline, Jesus-centered, transcultural, socially conscious. And so um, it really shapes how we want to shape our people to see the world and not to treat the gospel uh, as simply an ethereal message, but it has real world application. It means that you step into broken situations and not only treat people equitably, but you try to ensure equitability for all people as well. And that's what justice actually means. And so that means ensuring equitability for the police. It means ensuring equitability uh, for African-American men. It means addressing the difficult issues uh, and bringing to bear the biblical implications uh, and calling out uh, when people are politicizing what are very real biblical issues. And how has your own understanding changed over time as you've gained experience and wisdom as a pastor? How are you looking at things differently in 2016 than maybe you were at the start of your ministry? You find out the longer you do this that you actually know less than you thought. (laughs) You know, um, coming out of school, particularly out of seminary and then with those other degree backgrounds, you feel like you have all the tools uh, to do what you feel called to do. And over time, you realize that there are tools that you don't have, tools that you do that are dull, uh, tools that you have that you need to really throw away uh, because they're not helpful. And I think, uh, you know, now five and a half years into leading Renovation Church, which I planted 15 years into ministry, the biggest lesson that I've learned is that I don't ever know as much as I think I do. I have a very critical eye on myself, just a consistent desire to learn where I'm not seeing things rightly, uh, where I need to grow in not only my orthodoxy, my understanding of, of theology, but my orthopraxy, how that works itself out in real life. What about being a football player, being an athlete? <laughs> Do you see how God used even those experiences to shape who you are as a pastor? Oh, absolutely. Um, there is a, a diligence and a work ethic that came out of that environment that, I mean, I guess some would say is unusual to pastoral ministry. Um, and then, of course, it opens some doors. You know, when people hear you played in the NFL for whatever reason, um, they think you have something to say, which is hilarious because I've had about three concussions. So uh, they should be concerned if I can say anything legibly or, or clearly. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, it's opened some doors and given some opportunities in that regard. Do people come up to you and say, oh, you're the pastor who's played football? Do you do you ever hesitate how much that's become part of your identity or do you think you've outgrown it? I don't really even talk about it. And uh, Google has thankfully buried it pretty well. Uh, if you Google me now, ministry comes up. My, my book, Renovate, comes up. Uh, my family comes up, Acts 29. You got to do a little digging to, to find the football or, or find the wrestling even that I did before that. Um, so I don't really carry that as an identity. It's funny when people in our church community realize that I played for the Falcons or I played for the Saints. There's always a little bit of a funny conversation that follows that. Uh, but other than that, I don't talk about it a whole lot. I imagine people must be curious because there's almost this dual view that we have where there's a Tim Tebow type where certainly football players can be or athletes can be holy rollers, Christians, we see that identity. But then there's also this idea that 
being a professional athlete must be a real challenge. Yeah, it was very challenging. So you're a human being. Imagine if, particularly if you grew up poor, and then all of a sudden, you have the ability to buy virtually anything that you want. And everyone, every day, tells you how great you are. How many of your idols would that surface? That's what it's like to be a professional football player. And people are hard on these guys and and really critical of their actions and their decisions and what they say, not taking into account that if we had an endless stream of money and praise, uh, then we would make many of the same mistakes uh, if we aren't making them now without the endless stream of money and endless stream of praise. And so it was It was a very difficult time. I did serve the Lord faithfully. I ministered to a lot of football players uh, while I was playing with, with fidelity, walked with him, but it was not easy. It was not always fun, uh, and it was often very complicated. And you grew up in Louisiana, right? Uh-huh. So I'll admit that I'm not a football fan or Good fanatic, for you. <laughs> but the only football game I have ever been to was in the state of Louisiana. I went to an LSU game. The only football game I've been to in my wow. life, probably other than like a high school game. And so from that experience, even just one day, I could tell that Louisiana is a place where football mattered. So I guess even more so than just the fame you had, your background and upbringing, I'm sure, championing that path for you. Yeah. Yeah. Louisiana is crazy, isn't it? And uh, an LSU game is definitely one of the crazier environments death valley is a crazy environment to go and watch a football game in and so you see how it is idolized there and navigating that uh was a challenge as a young man it really really was so even if you didn't question when god ultimately called you to the pastorate did you have people around you family or people you knew from home saying what are you doing what are you doing uh my agent to this day will say i had more years left in me uh he actually he's a good friend he's a godly man uh, my former sports agent. And uh, just within the last 18 months, he said to me and, and to my wife, you know, he really had more years left in him. It was really a complex layer of things. Uh, I got injured and I got cut. And, uh, and then I kind of started this journeyman process and I was bouncing from team to team. Uh, and in a, in a moment of clarity and uh, in, a, in a prayer time, the Lord just basically impressed upon my heart pretty clearly that the, my time in the NFL was over and that if I wanted to continue to do this journeyman thing and hop from team to team, sure, I'd make a little money, I'd play a little ball, but there was more purpose in my life than just being a football player. And tell me why Atlanta? Why did I plant here in Atlanta? Oh, that's a crazy story. How much time do we have? I didn't want to plant here. I didn't want to be here. I'm in an interracial marriage. The South is not a particularly hospitable environment to that. We had been in Tennessee prior to moving here, which was a very painful but also fruitful time in our lives and in our ministry. And uh, I had plans on heading out west. California uh, was calling. I love it there. The weather's perfect. The issues that we have faced here around race and culture and ethnicity are not the same there. And my wife is from there. So it all made sense. Well, uh, through a long series of seemingly random events, I ended up coming to Atlanta to interview with North Point Church to be a part of their strategic partnership planting program. And after that interview, we realized that it wasn't going to be a fit both ways. It was a very amicable parting 
and so on the way out, uh, I got turned around and I got lost downtown by the uh, by the Braves uh, Stadium on University. And so I took University back over to Hank Aaron and took Hank Aaron to Ormond. And I kind of turned around there in People's Town. And they're at the corner uh, of uh, Ormond and Hank Aaron. The Lord said to me, not in any audible way, no burning bush experience, but in a very clear way, this is where you're going to give your life. And I resisted it, all out resisted it. Went back to Tennessee. We were there for a couple of weeks. My wife randomly wakes me up in the middle of the night uh, and says, I think we're called to Atlanta. And I said to her, no, we're not. And I turned over and went back to sleep. <laughs> and so uh, the next day we were making breakfast together is, uh, is our custom. And she was being a little cold. And I asked her what her problem was. And she said, well, I will follow you anywhere except into disobedience. And I believe you know what the Lord has asked us to do. And so that was a real tipping point. And, and from there, a bunch of crazy things happened. My same guy, exports agent, calls me and says, hey, I've got 20 families here in Atlanta, but we need a pastor. Will you come and be our pastor? And, uh, and so I told the Lord, you know what, I'll fast and I'll pray and we'll see what happens. And everything just kept lining up. And so finally I relented to what was clearly a calling from God. And in a two and a half week period, I resigned from my role there in Tennessee uh, and we moved our family down to Atlanta. I especially like hearing that your your wife was involved. Tell me how your wife and now your two daughters influenced the way you think about calling in the future for your family and your own life now that you're here. Yeah. I mean, my wife is integral uh, to this church and we do an event here called The Story where I basically tell the story of how we went from uh, two people in my living room uh, to the church that we are now. And, uh, and I tell our congregation every time, uh, Brianna is really the hero of the story here because I didn't want to move here in the first place. Then I did. And in the first six months, things were horrible. And when I say horrible, I mean horrible to the point where I was sure I had missed God's calling. And she repeated that same phrase to me again, uh, because I got offered a job in Miami and it was a nice job and it was a well-paying job and it was on the beach. And, uh, and I was like, you know what, babe, here's what happened. The Lord is bringing us through Atlanta to our ultimate destination there in Miami. And she repeated that refrain, you know, I love you and I will follow you anywhere except into disobedience. And if you want to go to Miami, I'm going to go because I trust God and I love you, but I think it's the wrong thing. And so she's had an incredible influence on me. Uh, even when I, when I say, you know, that I feel my calling is to help and be a part of reshaping Western evangelicalism, uh, pulling it out of the individualistic, consumeristic, nationalistic co-opting that has taken place in the church. She is my biggest champion and my biggest advocate. Uh, she's the first person that I bounce ideas off of um, to make sure I'm not crazy. And my children, of course, as you just said, my two daughters and now I have a young son as well. Uh, he's eight months old. I look at them and they are my inspiration for wanting to leave a better world behind. You know, I, I, I spoke to my congregation Sunday after all of the trauma last week. And, and I said to him on Sunday that one of the main reasons that this is important, that the church gets justice right. And, and in particular applied to this issue of uh, African-American men and policing 
is I don't want to have the same conversation with my son in 15 years that my dad had with me. My dad sat me down as a young man when I got my license at 15 and said, this is how you engage the police. Yes, sir. No, sir. Hand on the steering wheel. Never make a sudden move on and on and on because this will cost you your life. I don't want to have that conversation with my son. And so if the church can get justice right, and that doesn't mean being anti-police, that means being pro the excellent officers uh, that are being overshadowed by the ones who are not uh, and seeing their example uh, exalted and and put into practice uh, in a macro sense uh, and having the church push for that because it's a justice issue and not a political issue. Well, then uh, we'll leave a better world for our kids. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. I was actually talking to Alex Medina with Reach yeah, Records, and that's he, my guy. his son was born within a few weeks of Michael Brown shooting. Yeah, I mean, my son is going to be a large, um, imposing African American man, just like his father. Um, and those things uh, have typically been a liability in American culture, uh, a commodity, of course, during uh, slavery. Uh, and Jim Crow and sharecropping eras where men of my size were dependent for much work, but now a liability. And knowing that, uh, there's a bit of uh, fear in my heart that if we don't do something, he's going to face those same realities. You know, the, the, uh, the blog I wrote for Christianity Today two years ago, instead of using a whole lot of data, I tried to tell my story believing that when Christians heard a pastor say that I was pulled over for no reason, never given a citation, had an officer draw his gun on me while my wife was interrogated and asked if she was held against her will, even though my children are there in the vehicle, that hearing that story would spark some sense of righteous indignation in them. And of course, for many, it did. Uh, for many others, it did not. Uh, and the point is, I want to continue to push until how I look and how I am is not a liability in some circles, not all circles. We can't broad brush this. There are many, many excellent, wonderful police officers uh, in Renovation Church, in my own family, uh, in our country, and they're doing a service to the badge. Uh, but there are others who are not. And as long as we let them carry the narrative, uh, then this cycle of fear and division will continue. And as long as the church is silent, then I believe she'll be complicit. And have you seen change in the past few years? 
No, uh, not, well, that's not fair. Yes. Has it happened to the rate or to the degree and at the rate that I think it should? No. And as far as your daughters who are quite a few years older, your son's just a baby, but how do they understand your your job and what you do? What is their relationship to the church? <laughs> First of all, they love this church. They know that I preach the gospel. They know that. As a matter of fact, uh, funny story, um, my kids go to a, a, uh, a, a Christian school, and my youngest, who's about to be seven, had a project where she had to uh, draw Moses and then color him. And she colored Moses Brown because uh, I've taught them that um, in ancient Near East, that those were brown peoples uh, um, and where the Mesopotamia is and all that stuff. And so I said, despite what some of your Bibles look like, uh, Moses was brown. Jesus was brown. He wasn't as brown as daddy, but he was brown. And the greatest miracle Jesus ever did was being a white guy in the Middle East in the first century. So uh, so that's kind of a running thing in our family. So anyway, they get to school. Uh, a couple of the kids challenge Eva and say, Moses is not brown. He's white. And she says, no, he's brown. And the Bible says he's brown. And the kid says, well, no, my daddy says he's white. And she says, well, my daddy preaches the gospel. And he says he's brown. So he knows better than your daddy. So that is their relationship to what I do. They, I think they are less familiar with some of the social activism that I've been uh, involved in. But they know I'm a preacher of the gospel. They know that we love people because they're in our home all the time. And they have many uncles and aunties. Uh, they know I wrote a book that my daughter's trying to read right now, but she says the words are too big and I should have used smaller words. <laughs> and uh, and they know that I love the church. What is your favorite part of the local church? What is a special thing? Yeah, my, my favorite part of the local church is the community that we get to experience. That if we understand the Bible correctly, it's an eternal community. The layers of love and complexity and difficulty and challenge and growth and discipleship, what we're experiencing here carries on. And so none of these relationships are frivolous or meaningless. I love that the local church is is an expression of Christ's love to a watching world, particularly in Atlanta. I love that the local church can be um, a picture of how the world's systems should function. So where the world says segregate, the church says, no, all are equal at the foot of the cross, which means that uh, I don't have to assimilate to your culture to be your brother. and You don't have to assimilate to mine to be my sister because we are both folded into the family of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I love the local church and the ability to be able to do that. And you have this catchphrase, the ministry of presence. Yeah, Jesus was present. He was incarnational. Um, I think very often in Western Christianity, particularly because we're just overactive people, um, our mind goes to doing. We got to do something right away. When you look at a community or a group of people, very often the very best thing to do is to be present, to learn, to listen, uh, to soak in their narrative, their hurts, their fears. Uh, and it gives you a better avenue and a better perspective. Uh, then on how to communicate and apply the gospel. And I believe that that is ministry, and Jesus demonstrated it so well. He he absolutely, though he was king of heaven, took on the culture and the context of the people to whom he was ministering. 
Uh, he knew how to speak to them. He spoke in parables because he knew that they were agrarian and where they would relate and where they would connect to these grand themes of the kingdom of God. And I think when we do those things uh, and do them well, then we are experiencing the ministry of Jesus in his most purest and wonderful form. In the earliest days of this church, when you talked about wishing you were in Miami or anywhere with a beach, it sounds like, what did the ministry of presence look like then? Yeah, there were there were phases. So we moved here in the late summer of 2008, and it was just brutal. Uh, I've got three graduate degrees, and I couldn't get a job. Uh, I applied to 180 jobs, as a matter of fact. We ate through what little savings we had, and then we began to run up our credit cards. And that's when Miami started to look very promising. And so there was no ministry of presence. It was just survival and trying to decide whether we were actually supposed to be here or not. Uh, once we resolved that this is where God had called us and a few things started to fall into place, uh, I became very much a missionary to Atlanta, but more than that, uh, uh, an archaeologist almost, um, really just digging to see who Atlanta is. Uh, to understand all of her layers, to to become a local as much as I could uh, and and adapt myself to the realities of living in this city. And it's an ongoing process because the city changes. Uh, you know, gentrification has changed the face of Atlanta dramatically. And even now I ask myself and re-ask myself, um, what is renovation's primary role here as we evaluate the changing landscape uh, in which we presently exist. But back then, it was it was actually a lot more simple. We threw a lot of parties. We went to a lot of parties. Uh, we had a lot of people over. We shared the gospel face-to-face on a daily basis with our neighbors, uh, prayed for people, loved them, walked with them, uh, with the homeless and with the wealthy, with the student and with the professional. Um, and lived our entire life within about a square mile radius. What does a renovation party look like? (laughs) DJ, dancing, inviting our neighbors to experience life with Jesus' people in in a normal way, rather than trying to, you know, bait and switch them into a Bible study. So you would just have a dance party with people in your neighborhood? Absolutely. And we do it all the time. We do cookouts. We... Uh, you know, every year we, we do a big Easter egg hunt and there's no expectations afterwards. We just want to love our community well, uh, because we know that our people will build relationships that will turn into gospel opportunities. Uh, and that doesn't mean that straight up evangelism is not a, not a value here. I mean, we, we talk about it all the time that when you're being led by the spirit, there is no technique. You know, there are times where I've walked up to people. I mean, just random and said, hey, God loves you. And here's why. Because I felt the Lord prompt me to do that and share Jesus with them. And there are people who I've been walking with for seven years and I've had eight, nine gospel conversations with them and they have not moved. Uh, But we're still very good friends. And that is what the Christian life should look like. And that's what presence should look like. A yielding to the spirit that says, if I see a guy on the street and God says, go talk to him, I'm going to do it. And at the same time, not putting pragmatic boundaries on my relationships that turns people into targets rather than into people. 
Yeah, and you mentioned gentrification. I feel like that's such a dilemma for urban churches where you come in, you get to know the community, and then it changes. And on the one hand, you want better things for your community. You want more resources and things available, but you also don't want the community to get so much better that the people who were there can't afford to live there. Yeah. I mean, you you really hit the nail on the head. I I don't know what I would add to that, except maybe not only... Can they not afford to live there, the people who get moved out? But you lose some of the texture and you lose the culture that comes with having a diverse subset of people living in proximity to one another. And so it really is a dilemma. Uh, when, when we planted Renovation Church, our neighborhood was about 67% African-American artist. Uh, the homosexual community was, was prominent and some young professionals and students. And now the artists have been pushed out because of rent prices rising. Some of my favorite watering holes are gone uh, and going because of rent prices rising. Um, Home values have gone up so much that only a certain tax bracket of people can live there. No matter what their race is, they are in a certain demographic uh, and others cannot find a home there. And so we're asking a lot of challenging questions right now about what it means to be a transcultural church in an urban setting. Uh, Because we used to be an urban church that wanted to be transcultural. Now we're a transcultural church, and that's our primary value. But the urban environment is becoming less diverse. And so what is one to do? That That's the question we're asking right now. And I passed probably several dozen homeless people just within the few blocks walking from my car to your building. What is your ministry like to, yeah, to the people who don't have homes, to the people who are jobless? We have regular relationship and community with people uh, who do not have stable housing. We are a primary partner of the Atlanta Mission. Uh, What that means is not only do we help to fund their work, but we also resource it with people. Uh, We are also a primary referrer. And then we are a church that employs men that come out of their program to help them transition back into normal life. So our relationship, I believe, as best it can be, is a fairly healthy one with Atlanta's homeless community. There are several homeless people who worship here every Sunday that I know, and I know them by name, LaDavid, Reggie, John, they're here. Uh, Sometimes they wash up in the bathroom before they go to the service, and, and, and we're okay with that as long as there's no panhandling in the bathroom because we really go out of our way to meet their needs as well. And so having Peachtree and Pine right by our building has created an interesting dynamic because that seems almost an overwhelming, insurmountable task to meet all the needs there. And then, of course, uh, they're wrapped up in their own debacle with the city wanting to close it but not been able to close it. And so there's a constant fight around that. But we try to take a posture of humility in general to love them, to welcome them, because they are image bearers. They're image bearers. Uh, you know, they bear the Imago Dei just as I do. And uh, and then we try to make sure we resource entities that are built to meet their needs specifically uh, and and refer them to them and and kind of create a revolving door where they know that this church is their home, that agency can meet many of the needs that we can't beyond a hot meal and a, and a couple nights sleep. And then they can come back uh, through that same agency and have a home here with Renovation Church. 
I live just on the other side of Georgia, and even for people who are still within the state, there's weird stereotypes and conceptions of Atlanta, <laughs> where yeah, when are. I tell people that, that I come here um, for dinner, to fly out, to spend days with my friends, be careful. people um, say, oh, I, I really don't like Atlanta, or I've never really been to Atlanta, even though we live so... So I wonder, for both people outside of the city and then just listeners everywhere, what would you want to tell them about what Atlanta really is? Atlanta is a complex city filled with beauty and brokenness. We have the most beautiful aquarium. In the southeast, maybe in the nation, a beautiful civil rights museum, beautiful art museums. And then within the shadow of these structures, there are people who live on the streets uh, without homes. And yet, at the same time, there are enough programs in this city to facilitate everything that they need. And so Atlanta is a place, in my opinion, that should not be feared. Um, It is a place that Uh, I fear is losing some of its cultural value because of the dilemma of gentrification and the new Atlanta will be an interesting place indeed. And pastoring here requires you be sociologist and uh, an architect, cultural architect, not just preacher of the gospel. The impact that you can have really depends on understanding the different facets of that reality alone. I wanted to ask you, what would your advice be to your past self that, <laughs> that if you were to rewind? Which one? I don't know. Who needs the most advice? Who needs the wisdom that you have now? Or The guy who planted this church. And what would you tell him? Be patient. Just be patient. Having now assessed hundreds of church planters, uh, I've never heard anyone say we waited too long. I've heard a lot of folks say that we started way too fast. Just be patient. Trust the Lord and don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to fail. Experiment. Um, Take chances because it's God's church and one knucklehead from Louisiana isn't going to blow it up with one bad effort. And you talked about just coming from the X29 church planning conference. Have you seen that kind of wisdom being echoed by the network itself? I feel like as an outsider, someone who's covered it and has been part of X29 churches, there seem to be a lot of enthusiasm and push and go, go, go. And it does seem like I I see a different pacing among the way pastors talk about church planting within Acts 29. Yeah. Acts 29 has matured and it really is beautiful to see. Uh, I've been in the network for seven years and I can affirm that, uh, particularly from the leadership, from the board, uh, from the staff, that that is very much the wisdom that's being disseminated And then from the men that I know and the women that I know uh, that I have relationships with and even those that I see from afar, uh, I would echo the same, that there's a desire to be patient, to do long, faithful, rooted work rather than to see something spring up quickly. And uh, I'm very, very pleased with where our network is right now. Thanks for listening to The Calling. That was Leon Scrump, pastor of Renovation Church in Atlanta. You can follow him on Twitter at Leon Scrump, L-E-O-N-C-E-C-R-U-M-P. You can follow us at CT Podcast. This show, The Calling, is hosted by Richard Clark and edited by Cray Allred. We're a production of Christianity Today magazine. And the theme music you're listening to now comes from Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons license for Playout.